Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Movie Press Podcast. I am Carter and joining me as always is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing well. I'm excited to count down our top 10 films released in the U.S. in 2019. Yeah, we have the Oscars coming next week, so we are in this celebratory mood of the best films of the last year. We are going to count down our 10 to 1 best movies of 2019. Uh, do you want to go ahead and get started? Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Well, I think last few times I usually go first, so you go. My number 10 movie of 2019, released at the Cannes Film Festival, but did not get much of a theatrical distribution in the United States, unfortunately. It is Diego Maradona, directed by Asif Kapadia, who previously made the documentaries Amy and Cinna. I think this... Might not be his best documentary. I'm a really big fan of Cinna, but Asif Kapadia has a way of creating a vibrancy and a watchability to his documentaries that I don't think many other documentary filmmakers. Not like I'm an expert on the subject, but he's probably my favorite current working documentary filmmaker. And I'm a big world soccer fan, so Diego Maradona being one of the most legendary soccer players ever is just a perfect matchup of filmmaker and subject. That, of course, this is going to be one of my favorite movies of the year. I don't think that you have seen this, but you've probably seen Asif Kapadia's other movies. Uh, is that right? I've seen Amy. Okay, you've seen Amy. So just not his sports movies. <laughs> no, and I've said before, there are plenty of films I can point to where, like, we both really like Ford versus Ferrari. I care zero about auto racing or NASCAR, but it's such a compelling, well-made film same thing. I've seen plenty of documentaries, so I have not seen this film, but I have no problem watching it. I think uh, t- uh, Tom Hooper, who directed Cats and The King's Speech, I think his best film is The Damned United. It's a soccer film. Another soccer movie. Right. So um, I I think watch- you'd like this one. I, I recommend this to anybody, even if they don't like sports. Okay, well, then my number 10 pick is The Lighthouse, Robert Eggers' black and white, full screen horror fantasy drama starring Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe giving two of the best performances they've ever given. This was my number 11. Yeah, it's uh, technically a marvel. It's just so beautifully shot. It looks like a Murnau film from the late 20s or early 30s or an early universal horror film. It's just so striking. But besides that, the film wouldn't work if it weren't for the two lead performances. They're so utterly compelling and commanding on screen. And they're both utterly committed in giving grounded, you know, gritty, you know, performances, but they're also completely chewing the scenery, especially Defoe. And they're just having a great time. And I don't know entirely what to make of the film after just one viewing, but it's a real uh, singular film. And I, I love The Witch. And this just proves that Robert Eggers is a true talent and one of the best young directors we have working today. So what is your number nine? My number nine, and I'm pretty sure this is on your list and might be in a similar area to where it is on mine. My number nine movie was released earlier part of the year. I saw this in, I think, April. Uh, Peterloo, directed by Mike Lee. It's on my list, yeah. Okay, my number nine is a film that you have not seen called Transit by Christian Petzold, who uh, has directed films such as Barbara and Phoenix. And uh, this is such a interesting film because if you read the script, it, it's a film like Casablanca, or it seems like a World War II era 
film. It's romance and it's they're dealing with political turmoil, but it's shot, shot in the modern day. There are widescreen televisions, there are uh, modern cars, but there's no reference to anything modern in the script. They're not saying anything. They're not pulling out a cell phone, but it's set in the modern era. And I think it's actually based on a novel from 1944. Right. They adapt it straight up. They don't change any of the dialogue or anything. Right. It's just this, it's a film that is playing with time in a really intriguing way, the way that it's set. You know, you don't really know when it's set. It's this comparing the past and the present. So uh, it's got on a number of critics list. It was a very critically acclaimed film, but I don't think a lot of people saw it. It came out earlier in the year. So if people haven't seen Transit, uh, they really need to catch up. And if they haven't seen that director's films, uh, Phoenix is a really masterful film. Do you know if, have you seen any of his films? Yeah. Phoenix is one where it's about a woman who survived uh, a concentration camp in World War II and she gets plastic surgery and she ends up coming back into the life of the man she was in love with and he doesn't recognize it's her and she's like it's this very intriguing almost like Hitchcockian film it's and the final scene in that film is just devastating it's one of the best uh final scenes in a film of the previous decade but uh see his films but transit is my number nine film so my number eight movie of 2019 is The Souvenir, directed by Joanna Hogg, which is also a movie, which was the first half of the year. We have a tendency to forget these movies. This, I believe, is also on yours. It's also on my list. <laughs> Look at you. You're just consistently ranking these movies higher than me. Uh, I think number eight is also on your list. Marriage Story, possibly. Marriage Story is on my list. Look at them. Okay. We're getting out this crossover now. This is just a mind about. This, my next movie, I'm almost positive is not on yours, so I get a chance to talk again. I think you did like this movie, though. I'm pretty sure you saw it. Number seven, released in November, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, directed by Mariel Heller. Back-to-back female directors for me. I'm going to give myself a pat on the back. I'm not as much of a misogynist as the Academy. I like the film a lot. It's not in my top ten, though. Mariel Heller, she did Can You Ever Forgive Me last year, which was in your top ten. It is a movie that both of us liked. Uh, She is really developing into a really interesting filmmaking talent. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is not a movie that I was really excited to see. Uh, When I saw the trailer for it, I wasn't like, oh, this is going to be incredible, because I think it was a little bit mismarketed as a Mr. Rogers movie. And obviously, if you have Tom Hanks in your movie, you're going to market the fact that Tom Hanks is in your movie. But it is about so much more than Mr. Rogers. It's actually mostly about who's the actor, uh, the lead actor in it. The, from the Americans, his name is Matthew Reese. Matthew Reese is plays a journalist who is doing a profile on Mr. Rogers, and it is mostly about his struggling relationship with his father and the fact that he is newly a father himself and trying not to set a bad example for his son and that sort of struggle between being a son and being a father and also writing this piece about Mr. Rogers, which he's used to writing exposés about people and making it look really bad, and he has to do this puff piece for time. And it's a really nuanced, really funny, but really heartbreaking at some points, and a really powerful movie that gives a very uplifting message about forgiveness and not bearing grudges, and was a really beautiful movie. And I think that in a year where we had a lot of good movies, but a lot of dour, not necessarily sad, but not necessarily uplifting either, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, I thought was a very uplifting movie that 
I don't think enough people saw because it seemed like it was just going to be a cheesy, corny Mr. Rogers movie and was much, much more than that. Absolutely. I think that Mariel Heller is one of our most talented directors of actors. She gets such wonderful performances. She's done three films so far, The Diary of a Teenage Girl, Can You Ever Forgive Me, which was my second favorite film of that year. And now this one. I mean, Tom Hanks in the film, he doesn't entire. he's one of those He's playing a person who's so familiar that he, he he's not entirely getting, you know, he doesn't look exactly like him, but he's so perfectly cast, the personalities, and he does such a good job that I can't imagine anyone else playing him. And I actually, heard- Tom Hanks did a lot of times, yeah, I think you said, like, you notice it's Tom Hanks. He did a really good job of disappearing into the role of Mr. Rogers in a way he hasn't previously when portraying real life historical figures. Right, and it's such a... It's so much, so much, so much more dark and odd and quirky than you would think. Mm-hmm. I think, oh, it's just going to be. It's it. It's definitely not a Fred Rogers biopic. We, no. we. I think the Academy was very right in putting him in supporting actor. He is the Matthew Reese character is the lead, and it's fictionalized his backstory. And it's not. It is based on a real article that this man wrote. But it's a very moving film, and Tom Hanks and the entire cast just really, and it's so beautifully crafted. It's, yes. uses the old. Uses a really cool framing device where the whole movie is depicted as a single episode of A Beautiful Day in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And we have some really interesting puppet type and uh, figurine type settings. Like when he travels from New York to Pittsburgh, we see these Mr. Rogers versions of each city. It, I mean, I, the direction of it was just beautiful. I, someone less talented than Mariel Heller could have made it into a corny movie, but the final product was just incredible and much better than I expected it to be. Right. I, I highly recommend that film. So my number seven film is uh, another foreign film that I don't think you've seen. Uh-huh. It's uh, Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book. This movie, I can't begin to say that I understand almost any of it. It is basically around 85 minutes of random footage and television clips and internet clips, and the image is distorted and cut up and weird noises are put in. Basically, if you watch the trailer, it's like that for 85 minutes. It is annoying and it's just it's a cacophony of noise and images, but I love the fact that I think he was probably 87 when he made it, and he's 89 now, Godard, and he is. It's one of his most angry films. It's just it's it made me think a lot about the state of cinema in the world. I think that partially what he's saying is that back when films came around and for decades. The only way you could really see moving images was to go to a movie theater and sit in the dark with a bunch of strangers and see moving images. But now everyone has a little device in their pocket that they can stream a video. People go into a restaurant or bar. There's a hundred television screens. You go into a doctor's office. You have laptops and computers. You have giant billboards and that what is the state of the moving image in the modern world? What does the image mean? And he has these really damning examples of having old-fashioned pirate movies, and then he shows a clip of ISIS, and it looks almost the same, and he's like, you know, is it just more content to view and click on? Are we becoming desensitized? And I don't know exactly what he's trying to say, but there's even one part where he shows footage of concentration camps, and he has the word Hollywood remake flashing on the screen 
So it's a very dark, angry movie made by uh, an old curmudgeon. But uh, and I like I said, I don't know how to describe or analyze most of it. Sometimes you're just like, oh, I know what that movie is. What is he trying to say with it? I don't know. But I highly recommend it for people that are real serious cinephiles. And honestly, you know, if I was going to recommend people see 10 or 15 films from last year, like if you're a real cinephile, that would be in high on the list of like 10 or 15 films. Like if you're really care about cinema that you really should see it. And yeah. Uh, John Lucadar has always been a very provocative filmmaker in the sixties. It was like narrative features, but done in a very different way than anyone had done before. Uh, is this a movie that you would call a documentary? It's more like an art installation or a collage film that would be showing on the wall of the theater. So uh, at the Guggenheim on the top floor right, or something like that. Museum. Yeah. I, I found it. I just, I, I can't describe the film too well because you just have to experience it and it really is difficult to sit through it's only 85 minutes or so but it feels longer and it's just it's a tough film but it i love the fact that godard he is one of those directors like david lynch and robert eggers i'd say a young version that they are making films 100 percent on their own terms not having anyone tell them you know you're gonna make make this make more sense or can you tighten this up? He's completely working on his own terms. And I thought it was a really stunning, baffling uh, work of art. 2019 was a movie where we got a lot of interesting personal movies by sort of old master filmmakers. My number six top movie of 2019 was also a movie by an international old master filmmaker. It is Pain and Glory, directed by Pedro Almodovar. Uh, which got, I think, two Oscar nominations, one for Best Foreign Language Film and one for Best Actor. Is this in your top ten? No, but I very much like the film, despite the fact that at the New York Film Festival screening, I fell during the Q&A and fractured my ankle, pain and glory indeed. Yes, you were very much on the pain side of that, which was a real theme of this movie where, you know, it's in the title, but I didn't expect pain to be such a huge part of the movie because so much about it is him his daily aches and pains and stuff like that. It is a, I, when I first heard about the movie, there were a lot of uh, comparisons to eight and a half, the movie by Federico Fellini about a filmmaker making a movie. And in a lot of ways it's similar, but it's also similar to, to other movies of that genre. It's not like eight and a half is the only movie about filmmaking, but pain and glory is definitely the most autobiographical movie I've seen Pedro Almodovar make. I mean, so many of his movies seem like, like it's not like they're unnatural like they're not realistic movies but so many of them seem like they're in this alternate universe of style and color and people saying witty things this is the the movie of his that feels like it most takes place in the world that i live in and stuff happens in it that is stuff that i'm familiar with and uh the performance by antonio banderas as the sort of almodovar stand-in is really exceptional and is a real masterclass of restraint uh and it's the best I've seen him in a really long time. He's sort of been like in Puss in Boots territory for the last 20 years, but um, Pain and Glory was a really exceptional lead performance from him. And this is like the best El Motivar movie I've seen in a really long time. The Skin I Live In from 2011, I think, is his last really great work. I haven't seen his last two, so that's a little bit of a, a cheat on my part because who am I to judge movies I haven't seen? But I think other people would generally agree with that. 
But I, this is, for me, his best movie since, like, 2000, All About My Mother, Talk to Her, that sort of era. Um, what did you think about Pain and Glory, Jonathan? Well, to make it clear, I fell after the screening, so I had a wonderful time. <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, it's such a personal film. You feel so much that Amadovar is putting his soul in the film, and not that he hasn't done that with his other films. I think there's always bits of his films that are autobiographical, but this one feels even down to yeah. Antonio Banderas' hair looking Well, apparently like, the apartment that Antonio Banderas' character lives in is like literally identical to Almodovar's apartment in Madrid. Yeah, I just think it's... I have seen his last five films in a theater in their original release, and uh, I think it's his best of the ones I've seen in that group. Um, I He's one of those directors I have kind of a weird... Uh, there's a few directors like this. I've seen his first X number of movies. I've seen his most recent X number of movies, and there's a gap in the middle. I've not seen most of his movies. So, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful film, uh, Banderas. I was, uh, it's surprising he's never been nominated before, but I honestly think that I would possibly vote for him for Best Actor uh, of the five. Um, I would have. I mean, it's less showy than like what you get from Adam Driver in Marriage Story, and especially what you get from Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Joker. But it is well, an incredible performance of restraint, and he's in like almost every scene of the movie. Well, I would say that Adam Driver gives a very subtle performance, yes. except for a few scenes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah, you're right about that. That is overstating i shouldn't group those two in the same categories because they're it's very like, different kinds of movies it's like you have joaquin phoenix and leonardo caprio and <laughs> one even though caprio there's plenty of scenes where he's you know quiet but and then there's adam driver and um ben Price. yeah when neither of us seen that movie we, we will before the oscars that's <laughs> the that's the one in two ca acting categories but um yeah absolutely uh it, and it's a very accessible accessible film it's uh it's um, a wonderful movie. It's, it's very, it's very 2019. It feels very present. Like, uh, you know what I mean? It like definitely seems like it is of this era of this moment. Right. Yeah. Uh, so my number six film is yet another one I don't think you've seen and another foreign language film. <laughs> I also saw it in New York, not the same trip. And I just saw it in a uh, regular theater is Ash's Purest White. Mm -hmm. And this is a Chinese film, and I didn't know much going into it. And I had, at the time, had not seen any films by this director. Uh, I do not know how to pronounce his name. Ji Zhang. I don't know. Look up his name. But he's uh, a very good director, having seen two of his films now. Ashes Purest White is a film that there is a category of film, I like to say, where the first bit of the movie is like most movies and then you follow the characters through their life that you hardly ever see in movies so it's about this gangster's mall this woman who lives and loves a gangster and very early in the film he's out of the picture and you're just following her through the rest of her life and you just never really know where it's going to go it's yeah I, I love seeing a movie where you just don't know where it's going to go. And you're just following her through her life. Uh, the lead actress in the film would be my pick for best actress. If I was picking for mini film released in the U S last year. Um, yeah, it got a lot of really, uh, critical, a lot of critical acclaim made top 10 lists, but I don't think a lot of people saw it. So Ash, A S H Ash is purest white is absolutely worth seeing. That's my number six. 
whenever anybody says that, I, I feel like I want to add the in there, but the is not in the title. <laughs> right. When I tell my students, when they write their papers, make sure you have all the words and you don't add any. The movie is not the Joker. <laughs> Joker. And like McCabe and Mrs. Miller has an ampersand in the official title. You know, so oh, you that all... would be a real uh, nitpicking if you made them write the ampersand out instead of and. No, I, but I think with a film like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, it's important because it's like a, they're like a company together, like mm. they're starting a business. So I do think, but and the director of uh, Todd uh, Phillips talked about Joker. It's not the Joker. The Joker. It's, joke, it's Joker. It's a version. This is their version. So yeah. So Ash is purest white. It's my number six. Yeah, I'm looking at its Wikipedia page. It has a very interesting looking poster. And I'm going to take a stab at pronouncing the director's name. I think it is Jia Zhengji. Yes. And what is the lead actress's name, uh, who well, I don't know? The have. two lead actors, I'm not sure which one is wishes, Zhao Tao and Lao Fan. Yeah, I'm, I can't remember uh, who the female lead is, but it, she should win Best Actress in my book. And it's a. Like I said, you can't tell where it's going to go. And it's not like it's, oh, my gosh, there's this shocking reveal. It's just you, it's just watching her go throughout the rest of her life. So that's my number six pick. Yeah, another foreign film for us to see. Don't be afraid of watching movies with subtitles. It's a good lesson. Number five is a movie that has already been on your top ten, so we will talk a little bit more about it right now. Number five for me of 2019 is Marriage Story, directed by Noah Baumbach. We had an episode where we went more in-depth, or not too much in-depth. It was part of like a four-movie discussion. But as I said during that episode, I think this is Noah Baumbach's best movie that I've seen. And it's definitely up there with my favorite Scarlett Johansson performances, up there with Lost in Translation. And this, I mean, this was a big year for her. She had not been nominated for any Academy Awards before this year, and is nominated for two in different categories this year. And then Adam Driver, obviously, nominated for Best Actor as well. Uh, I watched this movie on Netflix for the first time and had it buffer like three times during the final half hour of the movie, which is not a, the best way to see it. But despite that difficult viewing situation, Marriage Story had enough of an effect on me for it to be my number five movie of 2019. It was my number eight. I'm a big fan of Bombach. I've seen all of his films except one. And it's way up there. I, I really do like The Squid and the Whale and Greenberg. They would be high on my list too, but Marriage Story, it's just screenplay, performances, direction, cinematography, shot on film. It's just so every category, even though it's not a big showy film, it's not something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where you go, oh, you really notice some of these performances. You notice the script, you notice the direction. And that's, you know, I'm not, you know, it's it's on my list high up. I really love that film, but Marriage Story, in a subtle way, it's so masterful in all the categories of filmmaking. The, I mean, the script and the performances are those top-notch. Well, it's think. very much a throwback sort of movie. It's like something that was made in the 70s, where the director had the vision and was allowed to do his vision. And you have to at least give Netflix a little bit of credit for that, for allowing filmmakers to execute a movie to how they want a movie to be done. And I think it's interesting that there really aren't that many films about divorce. I mean, no. Kramer versus Kramer. Squid and the Whale, which is another yeah. one Noah Baumbach made. Right. The Brood, which I always liked. It came out the same year as Kramer versus Kramer. And David, oh, really? Yeah, David Cronenberg said that it was 
um, the best film that you're about divorce. And well, no, what he said was that it was the more, it came out the same year, but it was the more realistic film about divorce. Mm-hmm. And I, but I mean, not that I can come up with a big list, but I would say marriage story is maybe the best film I've ever seen about divorce. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that, I mean, I would say like half of the world has been divorced and yeah, like, at least half of the United States. Yeah. And like, you never, it's hardly ever talked about yeah. in films very much. But I think that Adam Driver, you know, he's doing – I mean, he had like five films come out in the yeah, U.S. We just got out of Adam Driver season with uh, The Report and Star Wars and Marriage Story all coming out in like a month span. I know. And The Report, you know, there's just so many things that uh, he's just hosting Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's one of our truly great actors. He's up there to me with like Robert Pattinson mm-hmm. of like Generation. And he's terrific in the film. Uh, Scarlett Johansson, one of her best. I mean, all three of the actors who really good supporting performances too. Alan Alda, Laura Dern's almost certainly going to win Best Supporting Actress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wonderful film. I saw it in a theater. Like I think (laughs) Baumbach would uh, want people. Definitely would have intended, but hey, Netflix paid for it, so I gave Netflix a little bit of streaming (laughs) statistics. Right. So it's uh, absolutely uh, one of the top films. It is, you know, available to most people because most people have Netflix. You can go turn on Marriage Story as soon as you want. But I I mean, don't don't like pause it in the middle just because you can do that. Watch the whole thing all the way through. Yeah. And it is a little long for a drama. It's like two hours and 17 minutes, but Mm. it doesn't drag. It's very well crafted. You were number five. My number five is one that we mentioned before. My It's The Souvenir by Joanna Hogg. This is a film I saw in a theater. Hadn't seen any of her previous films. It stars Tilda Swinton and her own real daughter, uh, Honor. Is that her just... I feel it's like it's Honor a, Swin? Yeah. Uh, and Honor Byrne Swinton, I think. Yeah, it's based on Joanna Hogg's own personal life, her going to film yes. school in London in the 80s and her having a relationship with a man who worked for the government and had a drug problem. Mm -hmm. And it's a very specific personal, it's, I would, I mean, it would be an interesting companion piece with Pedro Amadovar film, Pain and Glory, because they're both about people reflecting on their past. And the movie for the first hour, I was going, "Mm, this is well made. It's kind of quite slow. Yeah, it's very slow. It's very, you might want to put the subtitles on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's very quiet and slow. It's one of those movies that when almost all the people that go to see it in the theater would be like really old people and <laughs> they see it has like amazing reviews and they'll go like, I hated that movie. It's so slow and nothing happened. I couldn't understand. But if you go with it and you, if you have to put the subtitles on and you just lean into the movie, the first hour I thought was, well done, but I was like, why does this have like the best reviews yeah. of the year? And then the second half just gut punches you. And I really staggered out of the theater and it's just so emotionally devastating. And I I was really won over by it. And it, you really got to stick with it because it's a yes. difficult film. It's not it's not um, stylistically difficult. It's, and well, it feels subject- like a throwback in a lot of ways to like the 80s or something like that. Right. It's a film that I don't know who would I do. Like if it came out in the day, uh, it's, it's almost like a John Cassavetes film in a way. It's just like so stripped down. Or and, like uh, what's his name uh, who did the uh, the movie with Daniel Day-Lewis, um, Prick Up Your Ears? Oh, Stephen Frears? Yes. Yeah. Well, and I, I should say with Cassavetes, he had more of a ragged style. And yes. her film is very precise. Yes. I don't think there's hardly any camera movement in it. 
uh, or it's very, you know, the sets are very designed and the characters are placed within the frame. Very, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. Painterly in a lot yeah. of times. And Tom Burke, who plays the the boyfriend, is say, exceptional. Yeah. And yeah. he's going to play Orson Welles in the uh, Mank movie coming out uh, next or this year, which yeah. will make an appearance on a podcast in the future when we look at our most anticipated movies of 2020. Right. I don't want to give away the line, but it might have one of the most devastating lines in film history where she just says two words, Tilda Swinton, towards the end of the film. Which was and apparently taken from real life, right? Yeah, that I just that was the part in the movie where it really was like, oh, it just like stabs you in the heart. Yeah, yeah it's a it's a beautiful, uh, heartbreaking movie, and it, you just have to you have to give your patience over. It's one you really have to turn all the lights and put your phone away and not. You got to just give yourself over mm-hmm. to the film, and I think most people, if they give it a chance, will be really moved by it and impressed by it. The souvenir, and I think it is available on Amazon Prime. Now, I think correct. don't shoot me if I'm wrong. Uh, my number four. Was oh, can just... I, wait, can I just make one point that you said sure. uh, this year there is going to be the souvenir part two in the end credits. Uh, there is a little hint that there will be a sequel. And so that hopefully will come out sometime this year. And I think if I'm not wrong, the Robert Pattinson's in the sequel. <laughs> That's I heard he was attached to it. Yeah. This is yeah. going to be like Call Me By Your Name, The Souvenir. We're just going to get these second parts to some of my favorite movies of the decade. I'm excited for that. Yeah. What's your next one? My number four, a movie that was just released on Blu-ray this week, just in time for everyone to see it before the Oscars, where it has a decent chance of winning Best Picture. My number four was the Palm Door winner of 2019, Parasite, directed by Bong Juno. Uh, where is this on your list? Because I assume it is on it. No, it's not in my top oh, ten. Oh, look at that. Yeah, I, it's a film I very, very, very much like, but I, there are just 10 other ones, at least, that I like even more. Yeah, I, this one was not quite this high on my list. It was on around 10 to 8 before I saw it again last week, and was really just blown away by how good it was. It's a movie where like every single word in the screenplay is there for a reason, and it's all so perfectly constructed as a screenplay and also as a movie experience that... Uh, you just rarely see movies that are made as precisely and perfectly and every beat of it seems to work as well as it does in Parasite. So for that reason, it is my number four on uh, my favorite movies of 2019. And I, you've definitely seen more movies by the director Bong joon than I have, but I mean, he's he's going to be a real force in the future. I'm excited to see what he can do. And I think I assume... He's going to continue making movies in Korea, but I, I think he did Snowpiercer in the United States, and I'm, I hope he makes more American movies in the future. Yeah, I think Harvey Weinstein kind of messed with him with the release of Snowpiercer. He oh, wanted really? to cut the film some, and he was like, no, you're not going to do that. And they're like, okay, we're not going to release it in that many theaters then. So it's so when you had to go to an art house theater to mm-hmm. see it. Yeah, so I've seen a number of his films. He's been one of my favorite directors for many years. I uh, His film Mother was uh, my second favorite film of the year it came out in the U.S., and I love The Host, his mm-hmm. monster movie that mi- mixes so many different genres. And so I've been a fan of his, and it's almost like with Parasite, it's just yet another really wonderful film by mm-hmm. him. And I think a lot of people had not seen any of his films or only uh, one or two, and so they were like really wowed by it. And I was too, but I just was like, oh no, it's just like another really <laughs> terrific uh-huh. film by him. So it didn't make my top 10, but right, it's one of those that would be right on the cusp. So mm-hmm. I absolutely recommend it. And it's like, 
a number of the films we've talked about, like Marriage Story and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, every aspect of the film so masterfully done. The and I want to shout out to the production design, which it should probably and the if not uh, they built the house where most of the movie set, like from scratch, and it is a work of art. Right, and the performances are so good. Didn't get any uh, Oscar nomination. No, one best ensemble at the SAG Awards. Right, so it could be history. There have been ninety. This is the ninety-second Oscars, I think, and there's never been a film that's won best picture. Well, it was a foreign language film, and there's only been about a dozen that have ever even been nominated. And Roma seemed like it was going to win last Shut year. Up. Yeah, but and this one is not a streaming film, uh, so. It could happen, but I, I, even though it's not my top ten, Parasite, if it did win, would make me very happy, and I, I love the director, so yeah. it's now Last out. Last nineteen seventeen hasn't been on either of ours, or, and probably won't be. It's not in my eleven through twenty, yeah. <laughs> but um, so absolutely, absolutely recommend. Um, so my number four pick is one that you mentioned earlier, so we'll talk about it now. Is Mike Lee's film Peterloo? I. I feel like I'm bragging. Oh, I flew up to New York to see that. But I did. I mean, what I do is I buy a cheap plane ticket and I stay with friends. And Mike Lee is one of my top 10 favorite living directors. I've said this before, that if I could preserve any living director and have them live to be 120 and in good health and mental stability, I think it might be Mike Lee. Like, I just want him to have a movie every three or four or five years for like 30 more years. 40 more years. I just so it's like a treat every time we get a film by him. And I, it just irritates me that that film has like a 64 Metacritic or something. And it's so much better than that. It's better than 1917. It's better than it's better than most of the best picture nominees, in my opinion, this year. And it barely got released in theaters. At least nobody saw it. it, it Amazon released it and it was going to come out into the previous year, but they pushed it to the first half of last year like made no money at the box office but it's this really painstakingly accurate uh, film about the peterloo massacre it happened uh right about 200 years ago where people were peacefully demonstrating and giving uh speeches about their rights and the government basically came in on horseback and slaughtered some men women and children and now it's not like a tarantino film it's like a hidden life in that it's a film about great violence and done to people but you know it's a pg-13 film and it's just you know it is a two two and a half hour plus period piece costume film where it's people very antiquated anarchic kind of language that could be distancing to some people right it's in a weird way like the lighthouse uh not as flamboyant in the dialogue but it's just there's something so rich and you're just watching people deliver great dialogue, great performances, mm-hmm. and you just, it's such an intelligent film. It's such a film of words and language, and, you know, it looks amazing. The cinematography, his longtime cinematographer, Dick Pope, and the cost, you know, every, it's just, yeah, I don't, I don't understand why, you know, it, it's like, if this movie came out in 1968 or 1974, it would have been nominated for Best Picture and Best Director. Oh, and, for sure. But, and now, like, nobody sees it. Nobody even knows of it. And it, it is an Amazon film, so it is an Amazon Prime. So absolutely see Peter Liu. Mm-hmm. And What's, Mike Lee, Topsy Turvy is one of my favorite movies of all time. Every time he makes a movie set in the past, it is such a treat because nobody gets period detail as accurately as Mike Lee. 
and this one is just incredible where the the event itself the peterloo massacre was a big demonstration we have people marching 10 miles you know they wake up at four in the morning and go walk for eight mile or eight hours just so they can get there on the day at manchester and it gets across those sort of period nuances so perfectly and the the massacre which you mentioned is not super violent but it is very affecting and is one of the more harrowing sequences of any movie i saw last year and it just leaves you when you leave the movie theater after watching something like that you just like feel like you were exposed to something that that uh you were glad you were exposed to and makes you see things in a different sort of way peter lou is a really really effective vital movie even though it's set in 1818 or whatever and like you said, it's probably better than most of the movies nominated for Best Picture. It is a real shame not more people saw this because uh, it is a movie with a great message and gets that message across so perfectly. Mike Lee is one of the great humanist filmmakers working today. Right. I would say Peter Liu and Harriet last year were two films that really make you think you should damn vote if you're eligible and you have the right to vote. It's important to vote. I'll just say that. Register if you haven't, if you still can in your states. The primaries are coming up soon. Okay, what's your next one? Uh, my number three, a movie you have not seen because you disrespect Greta Gerwig. I'm just kidding. You're going to see this eventually. Hopefully we will review it in the near future. I don't think it would have made your top ten. This made my top ten because I wanted to love this movie before I saw it. I'm such a huge fan of literary adaptations that whenever they come out, and especially when they're given the platform that this movie was given... I'm, of course, going to see it and love it. I'm, of course, talking about Little Women, directed by Greta Gerwig. Uh, my number three favorite movie of 2019 is an exceptional movie. It is, it's amazing. I, it's a real shame that the Academy is filled with such misogynists and old men that Greta Gerwig was not nominated for Best uh, Director for this. And they reward movies about male violence like 1917 and win a movie about love and finding your way through life and the little moments between you and the people you love are not rewarded so little women will be rewarded my top 10 and given the place of number three i wanted this almost to be even higher i love this movie so much you can't talk too much about it but i, I hope i'm not setting this up on too high of a pedestal that when you end up seeing it you're gonna be like oh that was okay not quite as good as he said it was I mean, I have every, I, I try to go into every film expecting it to be whatever it is. And I loved Lady Bird. That was in my top 10 of that year. So I am currently listening to the book on CD because I don't want to have the patience to sit and read a book because who wants time for that? But, uh, and I want to try to see some of the previous film versions. Now, I should have started doing this in November so I could have watched it when it came out on Christmas. Christmas Day, but, yeah. Right. My birthday, I could have seen it, but. <laughs> Uh, would have been a treat for the birthday a real uplifting movie and i think it's good that you're that you're listening to it because uh i mean i've read the book it is a little bit dated but the greta gerwig adaptation of it brings such new life to the words in it and a lot of the words she uses in the movie are directly lifted from the novel but the way they're delivered by the actresses and the situations that she puts them in and the little women seems more vital than it ever has and greta gerwig is such a talent of a filmmaker i want her to do more adaptations i want her to like do uh, like Jane Eyre or something like that. Next, she just brings such a new life to it. my favorite, probably genre. Uh, literary adaptations are probably my favorite kind of movies, and this is my favorite one in a really, really long time. And that's saying a lot. Right. Well, I'll go to a completely different film, and <laughs> I'm almost certain uh, we're going to be having uh, two films that are both in our top 
uh, five. My number three pick is Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assume it's... Which uh, if, you, if you listen to our top ten of the decade, you won't be surprised to hear that that is at a higher position on my list. And I think my number ten is number... My number two is number one for you, so you might as well just go down to your number two. Okay, my number two is a very divisive film that like nobody else has in their top 10. But I unashamedly think this is a wonderful film is Harmony Corinne's The Beach Bum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw this. It's A lot of my films came out in the first half of the year. I have no problem remembering movies like the Academy seems to not be able to remember <laughs> anything that doesn't come out in the last six weeks of the year. But I've seen most of Harmony Corinne's films, and most of them are really aggressive and difficult, like Gummo and Trash Humpers, and even something that's a little bit more commercial, like Spring Breakers, is still a really... uh, It kind of wants you to hate it. Exactly. And The Beach Bum is undeniably a Corinne film, but it's his most accessible and it's a goofy stoner comedy with a bunch of famous people in it, but it absolutely has the stamp of a Harmony Crin film. I think Matthew McConaughey gives one of his best performances. He plays this Hunter S Thompson type writer who's basically, right. He's basically uh, squandering his talent by drinking and drugging in Florida. And he is not using his potential to write the great American literary classic that he had seen that the film at least, suggest he has the capability of writing has a really eclectic supporting cast going from snoop dogg ilsa fisher amazing jonah hill jonah hill martin lawrence zach efron (laughs) the best uh, zach efron you'll ever see right i mean when he has that haircut in his clothes and he's dancing (laughs) with his vaping the whole time yeah he's dancing with this uh large black woman it's just like this is what cinema was made Mm -hmm. for It's an anarchic, it's a really anarchic movie, and it's sort of hallucinatory. I could see people who aren't on its wavelength being like, this is stupid, this is a waste, but it's a really fun movie, I mean, but also has a really, it's not as empty as maybe some people would think it is. There's some heart to it, and there's some message to it, but it is a very fun movie. This might be like the most fun movie that we've mentioned. Right, it's just absolutely works on the level, I, I... I haven't seen a ton of stoner comedies that it's like how many divorce movies can I mention? But I'll just say my poster line is that the beach bum is the best stoner comedy since the big Lebowski. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that it's one of the most watchable films on this list. It's just utterly entertaining, but I do think that it's really well directed and that it has a real purpose besides just being a goofy stoner comedy. It has a poetry to it and I always defend Harmony Corinne, uh, even a movie like Trash Humpers, like there's something going on there. I mean, he doesn't always completely land what he's trying to do, but I love that he's so unique and he seems like even when he makes this more commercial film, it's still utterly on his own terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, It came out early last year, The Beach Bum. I don't think a lot of people saw it. Uh, Got really mixed reviews. It's in the yellow on Metacritic, like a 50-something. Shame uh, on those critics that gave it bad reviews. Shame on them. Yeah. I I understand that, um, you know... But I I think for a lot of reasons, like, that puts people off of movies. When they go to Metacritic and see something's either the yellow or the red, they're like, eh, not worth my time. And they have a power. And their power dissuaded people from seeing this movie. And that's a... They should be castigated for that. Well, I think that I remember Steven Soderbergh one time saying, uh, what would 2001 A Space Odyssey had on Rotten Tomatoes when it first premiered? <laughs> yeah, like a 50. 
Yeah, it's. I remember he said that uh, some person said Rock Hudson was the premiere of 2001 and walked out of it saying, what the hell was that? I mean, some films, I mean, The Beach Bum is much more just easy to watch. And it, I understand it's not for everyone, but I don't understand why it didn't get at least like a 70. Yeah, exactly. It's, I, it's a tough. People wanted to hate it if they were like, oh, that's a one. That's a zero. That's a two. Like, come on. It's, it's at least like a six. You at least laughed during a the amateur dolphin trainer part of it. Like there's just too much funny stuff about this movie for anyone to hate it. Yeah. And honestly, the best actor race was so competitive this year. I would have nominated Matthew McConaughey. If I were just on my own terms, picking my five picks, he would be one of them. I think it's one of his best performances. Mm. He captures the funny goofiness and it's, it's also a performance where part of his persona Matthew McConaughey, he's so much in the character, but it's also so much a creation of, you know, Harmony Corinne. So uh, The Beach Bum on Blu-ray streaming, however you see films, catch up with that, especially if you're a fan of Harmony Corinne or Matthew McConaughey. If you haven't seen it, The Beach yeah. Bum. Sort of last note on that is ever since, I guess, like Dallas Buyers Club, um, True Detective kind of, Matthew McConaughey has been very serious. All of his roles have been like very serious, like interstellar. He's not exactly funny. And this is something that he would have made in like mid 2000s when he was doing like Surfer Dude, when all of his movies were just him being silly Matthew McConaughey. It's not as bad and throwaway as those, but it is sort of a return to him being fun. Right. It's him doing one of those, but with an auteur. Yes, exactly. It's a perfect sort of mashup of that. I, I, I love the beach film. I think it, it's number 19 on my top 20 of 2019. So I think my number two is your number one, and my number one was your number three. So <laughs> my number two of 2019 was The Irishman, directed by Martin Scorsese. It's my number one. And my number one is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed by Quentin Tarantino, which is your number three. Which one do you want to talk about first? Uh, let's... Do, well, okay, let's do um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it's a little farther down on my list. Makes sense. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I gave most of my uh, – not even most of my spiel. I talked about it a little bit on our top ten of the decade. But out of all the movies that came out in 2019, this is definitely the one I've seen the most. I've seen it, I think, four times. You are not someone who has – who rewatches movies very often. Have you seen this since uh, you saw it for the first time in theaters in August? I haven't seen any of the 90-something films I saw last year more than once, I don't think. Wow, look at that. So I, I wonder how this is going to be for you when you when you rewatch this movie. Because Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there are so many great scenes in it. And it's not a movie with a ton of scenes. Each scene seems to last like 15 to 20 minutes. But each one is like a little short movie unto themselves. Uh, there's a great scene at uh, uh, the... Spawn Ranch. Yes, exactly. The movie ranch for the Manson family is hiding out. It is no secret that this movie is about the Manson family. It involves the Manson family. We won't spoil the end of it, but it it's just menacing. That's classic Tarantino up there with like the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards or uh, any scene in Reservoir Dogs Retention or some of the best scenes in Pulp Fiction. And it also has some really more introspective uh, than you're used to with Tarantino because most of his are just movies about movies and this is a movie about movie also but it's also a movie about him thinking about himself in a way that we're not used to quentin tarantino being i mean this in a lot of ways 2019 was like an old masters kind of year i really got that feeling when i was watching pain and glory you know what i mean about that 
Like a lot right. of personal movies by veteran filmmakers, and a lot for a lot of them, like their best movie in a long time. Right. Uh, Martin Scorsese with the Irishman, Tarantino with Hollywood, uh, Richard Jewell, uh, Clint Eastwood's film Godard had a film. Michael uh, had a film. Right. And um, yeah, I I think that Hollywood is one of Tarantino's best films. It's I mean, even people that dislike the film and have problems with it can't deny the artistry. On, uh, and the, I think most people that have a problem with the performances, Brad Pitt is having so much fun and it's his best work in a long time. So almost certainly going to win Best Sporting Actor. Uh, Margot Robbie is lovely and transcendent as Sharon Tate. And there's such a wealth of supporting performances. Brewster is really wonderful in like one little scene on, on Ranch. And yeah, it's beautifully shot production design costumes, the choice of music. And if The Irishman is an old man's movie, you could say Quentin Tarantino is making his middle-aged man, you know, uh, you know, he's in his 50s now. And I remember one time you were saying about how Tarantino is like old guard Hollywood. I was like, what are you talking about? He's this up-and-coming rapper. But I'm like, well, not anymore. He's like establishment now. He is um, probably going to win Best Screenplay. And I don't probably not, but it would be really wonderful if he won Best Director. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, when this came out, uh, it seemed like everyone, and in a lot of ways that we made the mistake with the stars board last year, we're like, as soon as it came out, we're like, oh, this is going to win Best Picture. But that's really fallen off. The same with The Irishman, which uh, we'll get to in a second here. But uh, do you think, I mean, you said it has some chance. I don't think it has any chance, but I, I would be shocked if it won Best Picture at this point. I'm think you, your stance is you would not be shocked if Once Upon a Time in Hollywood won Best Picture. I mean, I would put it at like two or three. Uh, not, not. I'm saying personally, like just from odds of it winning. I just, I don't know. I don't think know. it has I, a better or worse chance than Joker. Oh yeah, I think it definitely has a better chance than Joker. I, I just, think they're right at the same sort of level. I think 1917 mm-hmm. has become like such a clear favorite. Right, and I think uh, is it going to split though? Or are they going to give a uh, director to uh, Jun Bong Ho, and mm-hmm. they're going to give? I don't know, but. I mean, I heard some Oscarologists say that he's going out on a limb and think the Irishman is going to win Best Picture oh. because so many people respect Martin Scorsese and so many of all the different crafts think the movie is the writing and the editing and mm. uh, you know the special effects they use in the film that, that so many people – and because it's on Netflix – that a lot of people have actually seen that one and that there's going to get a lot of uh, number two and three votes and that adding it all up. I don't know that that's going to be the answer, but um, it would be real. I mean, I would vote for Scorsese for best director for the Irishman, but Tarantino winning for Hollywood would be wonderful. I just, yeah, it's on Blu-ray now. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I love a lot of Tarantino's films and this is one of his best ones. And, and it was I, your number three of the yeah. last year, correct? And I'd like to say that my mom does not always like Tarantino's movies and she says this is his best movie. And so it's even a film I think that exactly. both people who love Tarantino would like it, but if you're not the biggest fan of his, I think you still might like it a it lot. It might be his most accessible. I think he's like starting with Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained, not necessarily Hateful Eight, but I think as he's continued, his movies have sort of got more accessible. That might not be true because Pulp Fiction was such a hit when it came out, but I think that a lot of people really didn't like that because it showed a sort of lifestyle and a morality that they just did not agree with. But I think his movies have become a little, and I think that it says a lot about society too, that Tarantino's sort of style is less off-putting than it was in the 90s, that we have sort of 
come to a middle place where our standards are the same as his. But, I mean, you would say that, I mean, your mom liking it is a good example of that. that this is probably his most accessible movie. But I would say The Hateful Eight is one of his least accessible yeah. films because it's really nasty and overlong and we both don't like it. But yes. I, I think that it's... That's a, sort of an outlier out of the past four, though, when you when you look at sort of Sense and Glorious Bastards, his body of work. And I think that it's... I, we don't want to go into spoilers, even though probably most people have seen the film, that it's about two hours and 41 minutes long. Mm -hmm. There's probably like five minutes of violence in the film. Mm -hmm. Not very violent, except when it is violent. It's incredibly it's violent. violent, yeah. And we don't want to give it away, <laughs> but we'll just say that even though it's a Manson film, if you're messed up enough, it's very entertaining violence. It's yes. not, don't don't be worried uh, thinking this is going to be like a horror film where it's going to be just utterly depressing. Yeah, the, the climactic scene was, fulfilling. it was one of the most, interesting film going experiences i've ever had because people in the crowd just like didn't know what to do there were people like screaming there were people laughing and i was just like holy shit this is unbelievable and there are i've heard a number of critics who praise the film in many ways and generally like it that really have a problem with the ending but i like a film risking going out on a limb and having that ending and some I, it gets a reaction you can't say that that scene does not get a reaction yeah like i've heard people criticize the film saying that Tarantino had the ending in mind and then he crafted the film around it and that the ending feels tacked on and that it isn't earned. And, and the first part of the film is this hangout movie mm -hmm. where you're just kind of leisurely following these characters' lives. And then the ending just like, it just seems him going back well, to- That's why the, the Spawn Ranch sequence is so important because that's where the, the sense of dread enters into the movie. And yeah. Like Parasite, but, it's just such a perfectly constructed movie. Like every scene builds into it. I, that's a that's a tough criticism to say that it's not deserved at the end. No, I I don't have. I, a yeah, I know you're not saying it, but yeah, for and, people who are, mm, they're looking for I'll, stuff to complain about. And not to give away the ending, still, but I'll just say it's especially the ending of the movie, the final shot. It's yes. one of his most moving. Th I it, I don't know if I've ever been really moved by a Tarantino film before, except I do think it's odd you said about, and I agree that I think part of Pulp Fiction coming out, people were kind of, you know, oh, this is like so profane and it's violent. and it's, I mean, my parents oh, walked out of it when they saw it in yeah. theaters. But there is a weird spiritual connection. Like there is kind of a weird morality to Pulp Fiction. To the Fiction, very end of it, yeah. Yeah, but I'll say that the Hollywood has uh, a really melancholy air to it, and it feels like I think it's Tarantino's most grown-up film. Mm -hmm. And even if the ending is kind of childish in a way, and it's playful and outrageous, the very end of the film, the last scene and shot, it, it's it's very moving and one, one of the great title reveals to end a movie. Yeah, and I won't go into it because we. But the last, the look up where the song is, mm -hmm. and over the last shot, where that is from, and it's interesting making a connection, like how Tarantino uses songs. It's from a older uh, film from the seventies, uh, a western. So it just look that up, and you know, it's an interesting use of music. But yeah, absolutely worth seeing for fans and detractors of Tarantino. Give it your, give it a chance. So my number two, your number one, a movie you got to see long before most people did because you attended, uh, was it the, the world premiere or just the U.S. premiere? The world premiere. The only other thing was they had a screening earlier that day for a press, and I was there in the, the literal front row. Uh, they selected seats for you online. and How I much, had... how much of, of that does it have an effect on it being your number one movie? 
Well, I've heard people talk about Oscar voters and that one of the things that could hurt the Irishman and its voting for best picture or in other categories is that people watch the movie in like 40 hour minute uh, segment. And that in this is a film. You can debate about Twin Peaks and something and honorable mentions about what is a film, what is television, but this is undeniably an epic film. This is a work of cinema. This is not a TV miniseries. Uh, it is not something that should be watched broken up. It should be watched in one sitting. I sat there, didn't get up and go to the bathroom. I sat through the entire end credits, all three hours and 29 minutes. It's a masterpiece. I don't, the only film I think from last year I would use that M word on, I think it's Scorsese's best film of the century. Um, like Hollywood, I think it's a film that's melancholy and it really has something to say about violence and the effect it has on people. And it also is an interesting connection to Hollywood that it, it plays with uh, history and how we tell stories about, you know, Jimmy Hoffa and like, we don't entirely know the truth about what happened. So I, I mean, I, we talked about this before we've reviewed it. I put it in my top 10 of the whole decade. So I don't have too much more to say. I still only seen it once. I almost want to preserve in my head. Like you said, the, that screening was just amazing. They had Scorsese and De Niro and Pacino and Pesci and a bunch of the other actors and producers there in person introducing it. They didn't talk very long. They're like, the movie's really long. We need to start it. It's like but, Marty needs to go to bed. But like yeah. you're saying, it is a very melancholy movie. But And Scorsese has such an incredible way of balancing sometimes very harrowing subject matter like for example raging bull or taxi driver but in in that same movie making it riveting and watchable and entertaining and the irishman is sometimes like a very funny movie but then the next moment he's brutally killing somebody and you know being emotionally distant from people around him like it in many ways it is a movie about like a psychopath someone who just emotionally cannot come to terms or doesn't even like think about the consequences of his actions but and in a lot of ways, uh, I heard some people make this comparison that it's like Forrest Gump in which the main character stuff just sort of happens to him and he's like involved in big events, but he doesn't really have the capacity to think about him being at the center of all this historical sort of stuff. Um, and it's uh, like I was saying about Pain and Glory, how that's a really reserved performance from the lead actor. I mean, Robert De Niro is outstanding in this movie. It's a real crime. He was not nominated for Best Actor. But for the first uh, three hours, maybe two hours and 45 minutes, you're a little more like interested in watching Joe Pesci because you haven't seen him on screen for such a long time. And then you're interested in watching Al Pacino because Al Pacino is so good and you haven't seen him this good since like Heat from 1995. But then when those people recede from the movie a little bit, Robert De Niro's performance comes to the forefront in such an amazing way. And everything he's been doing up until that point, you start to realize that like he was doing that for a reason. And he's built up such an incredible performance and such an incredible character throughout it that it's one of my favorite Robert De Niro performances. Yeah, the scene where he's talking on the phone, if you remember that, that's such an amazing scene. And the ending, or the whole end, I, I would, I don't like Forrest Gump. I think The Irishman is a better film. Oh, yeah, than, but you can understand but, the, the yeah. point there. I, I think another comparison I would make is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Mm -hmm. It's an old man's film about characters reflecting on their life and the choices they've made and the effects of violence and the story being – what's the story being told? Um, yeah, it just – it's it's a film that the more I think about it, the more it resonates with me and the deeper I get into it. 
yeah, I, I, I should watch it on Netflix sometime. You but really should. Yeah. Because, I mean, also... so many scenes, and I, I remember you saying, like, when you first saw it, like, you weren't blown away by the first hour, but I've we watched the first hour, like, a bunch of times, just because on Netflix I haven't watched the whole movie, but just since it's on Netflix, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to turn on The Irishman again. And some of the sequences in the beginning of the movie, and the way they introduce the three different time periods, uh, like him in the retirement home that frames everything, and then them on their road trip to Michigan, and then the stuff happening in the 50s. It's all just so perfectly balanced. It's a really incredible screenplay by Steven Zalian. I don't know how often we've mentioned that, but just an amazing... Scorsese was never a great writer-director, so it's he's in a lot of ways a little dependent on someone making a great screenplay for him. He's obviously written stuff like Goodfellas, but that was co-written with Nicholas Pileggi, who wrote the source material. And The Irishman is such a perfect mashup of screenwriter and uh, director. It's sort of like how Lincoln was with Tony Kushner and Steven Spielberg. That I'm, I'm grateful that Steven Zalian gave such a great screenplay for Scorsese to take and run with and, and make a masterpiece, like you said, one of his best movies of this century. Yeah, I think that it's a film, like I said, watch it in one sitting. I mean, you can get up to the bathroom if you need to, if you're watching Netflix, but don't break it up over multiple nights. Yeah, it should, and I don't want to go into a rant, but it makes me so sad that Joker it makes a billion dollars worldwide and plays everywhere, and the Irishman barely got released in theaters, and that he couldn't make it for a decade, and he had to go to Netflix I yeah I don't want to get depressing because we want to praise this movie but uh you know I it makes when, me uh, it's going to be released on the Criterion Collection we got that news last week so people who aren't Netflix subscribers can can get this movie on Blu-ray and I'm glad that I'm going to have a a way to watch it this isn't necessarily Netflix so at least there's that good news yeah I, the other point I was going to make is I think that. I wonder if the watching it on a television, whether the special effects, the de-aging would look different from seeing it on a massive screen. Because I think it looked really good on a uh, movie theater screen, but I wonder if watching it at home makes it more look digitally. But you did see it in a theater once, yes. at least, yeah, right? Yeah, I did. I saw it in a theater, and then I've seen it subsequently on Netflix, on whether it be an iPad or my phone in a bathroom or a TV. <sighs> I'm literally like, I'm like, oh, I'm taking a number two. Let's watch the first three minutes of The Irishman. That's it, probably not how Scorsese meant one to watch it, but, you know, I saw it in the theater. I'm allowed to consume it however I want after that. Well, I would have more respect for Scorsese. Than, <laughs> but uh, it's, I, it's my profound respect for him that every waking moment of my life, I want to be watching The Irishman. <laughs> Well, I absolutely recommend seeing it on the bi biggest screen you can. It actually came back to a few theaters mm -hmm. when it got the Oscar nominations. But I, I've said it before. If it wins Best Picture, which I don't think it will necessarily, but if it did or Marriage Story, they're not going to play in most theaters. It's not going to play at Regal just because it wins Best Picture. And that makes me sad. Well, if it wins Best Picture, uh, Ted Sarandos might put that out as just a big slap in the face to all the big studios. And, hey, I'm just going to put it out there, put it out on your property. But no, it probably won't. Yeah, I, well, I think it's the theaters that are still, they're going to... Uh, they or, don't want Netflix movies in there. Or they'll go, oh, it, it just won Best Picture. Please let us play it in theaters. Like, nope, you wouldn't let us play it, so you're not going to get it. That's uh, probably true. But yeah, so, so do we want to do some uh, honorable mentions? Yeah, let's 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 do a little bit of honorable mentions. Do you want to start out? Okay, I, want, I have 10... Not ranked, except I have an asterisk one. Like with my best films of the decade, mm -hmm. I have 
a work of moving image art that some people consider to be a film. Now, I don't know the rules. I teach film. I have a master's in cinema studies, but I don't know what is a TV movie and a film and a miniseries. The lines blur more and more every day. Exactly. So I've said before, I think Twin Peaks, the return is definitively television, but too old to die young would be my second favorite quote unquote film of last year. It is Nicholas winding Refn. He directed 13 hours, uh, broken into 10 episodes. It's, aired all at once on Amazon Prime. And it is more than any film I saw last year, besides maybe uh, the image book, it is a singular film that is just completely on the terms. Uh, Refn is just absolutely doing what he wants. And like Twin Peaks The Return, he is just basically fucking with the audience and being so perversely slow and graphically violent and nihilistic it is, I think, one of the most political works I saw last year, even though it isn't overtly about anything political. It's this nasty, ugly descent into this criminal world starring Miles Teller as a dirty cop having an affair with a young teenage girl. And it's about him and John Hawks playing a hitman who go around killing pedophiles. And it's just, I mean, you really, it makes Twin Peaks The Return look like you know, the most fast paced, rip roaring. I mean, it is. It makes it look like a Michael Bay movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is the slowest. Glacial house. is how yeah. one would describe it. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, like, you really, like, it makes most art house movies that are slow look fast. I mean, <laughs> Andy but, Warhol's 12 hour shot of the yeah. Empire State Building, it makes that look fast. Yeah. It's like the scene in Twin Peaks, The Return, where they're sweeping the bar floor for like two and a half minutes in their dialogue. Like half of the series is like that. Um, but What now, makes it so watchable? It is, it is utterly just Refn doing exactly what he wants. And it's so stylish and just disturbing. He's and, previously done Drive and Only God Forgives and The Neon Demon. Right. Neon Demon was his last uh, theatrical film, which Amazon released. And this is Amazon Prime. And I don't know how they do it. They basically gave him a giant sack of money and gave him months and months to shoot this 13 hour film or miniseries and have absolute creative freedom. And when it came out, like they did not like push it like they kind of they didn't No, And I honestly I would love to see the entire planet earth, how many people have seen all 13 hours? Like, I don't think less than a thousand. I think there, I seriously think there are like quadruple bajillion times the many people that have seen all 20 something MCU films from Iron Man to the last Spider-Man have seen all of them in a theater in the original release twice (laughs) than they have seen all 13 hours of tool today. So I think it's brilliant. And I will say almost everyone will hate it or not like it or it will absolutely not be their cup of tea but if you're a fan of Refn and you don't mind slow auteur driven works of art that are nihilistic and ugly and perverse it's you know if, if that sounds like your cup of tea you yeah, should there's watch. like one guy out there is like yeah that sounds amazing <laughs> i think i think it's going to be one of those where 50 it's going to age pretty well in like 50 yeah. 20 years time people yeah. are like we should have paid more attention to that when it came out 
50 years from now, no one's going to be talking about Green Book or 1917 or Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, where they're going to be talking about Too Old to Die Young and like Inland Empire and Synecdoche in New York, like some of the greatest works of art. Uh, so Too Old to Die Young is, uh, would be my second favorite film. And, you know, if you, who knows what to call it, but, uh, moving you know, image artwork. Yeah. yeah. That's the phrase I use now, moving image work of art. So, <laughs> Uh, why don't you just run through yours, and then I'll go through my other 19. So I've got The Lighthouse, which you mentioned, The King, directed by David Michaud, a Netflix movie, which I do not think you have seen, starring Timothy Chalamet. No. Great, great movie. Midsummer was a movie I was thinking about. Uh, well, I have that on my list, but... Apollo 11, great documentary. I have that on my list. A Hidden Life... I was thinking about putting it in the top yeah. ten, but I think I think uh, like for you attending the Irishman at its premiere was such a great movie going experience. I saw I Hidden Life in maybe the most uncomfortable chair I've ever sat in when seeing a movie. So I think if I had seen that in better circumstances, it would have made the top ten. So I'm gonna I'm gonna blame the auditorium where I saw that for me not liking that as much as I should have. Blinded by the light. I'm pretty sure you saw that movie. Yeah, it's really, uh, it, it, along with the beach bum in a different way, it's one of the most just purely entertaining and, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, joyous films of last year. And then Knives Out. Yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. Not something as aspirational to greatness as something like The Irishman or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but a very enjoyable movie, Knives Out. Yeah, the cast just having a good time. Playing exactly. A great, great, great cast. Uh, right. Long Shot, not necessarily one of the best movies, but I liked it a lot. Also, Booksmart, I really, really enjoyed. Booksmart is, uh, off the top of my head, the best studio comedy that I saw last year. Not a lot of great studio comedy seasons. No, that might be true for me as well, actually. Yeah. So are those your uh, 11 through 19 in no particular order? or? Uh, that is, I think, yeah. Okay, um, so I have Too Old to Die Young as an asterisk that would have been my second favorite film, but then just alphabetically not ranking them, here are nine other films that would be in my uh, 11 through 20. Uh, Apollo 11, mm -hmm. you mentioned, uh, wonderful documentary, great use of editing uh, old material. It's one of those documentaries where there's no modern talking head interviews. You're mm -hmm. just taking old footage. It's, yeah, it's literally just you watching footage. Right, and it's utterly compelling. Um, I don't know if you saw this film, but uh, Todd Haynes' film Dark Waters. No, I didn't. Yeah, that's a movie I went into like, oh, it's Todd Haynes who's like... Well, it sort of came out of nowhere. Like, I feel like I first saw a preview for it in like late October, and then it was released like November 20th, and I was like, where did this movie come from? Yeah, it's. I didn't think it was going to come out this year, and then they... Yeah, uh, it's Todd Haynes who's very much an auteur who's made yes. films like Carol Park, and Carol and uh this movie felt like oh he's just like plopping himself into this script of this true story about a man who is fighting a big company about environmental you know people being poisoned but it's like an old school Howard Hawks or you know one of those directors that could do anything and this is just mm -hmm. such a well-directed film and it's just the example of how a really talented director can just direct the hell out of any type of film mm -hmm. and i thought it was super underrated and i don't think a lot of people saw it and it's one of mark ruffalo's best performances it also has anne hathaway and tim robbins mm -hmm. and bill camp 
And yeah, it's 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 a tactile film. You feel like you could touch the uh, you know the scenes. It just feels so crisp, and it's like uh, in the category of like Spotlight, where mm-hmm. it's so compelling, and you get angry by what's happening, but it's so richly you know photographed and so compellingly told. Uh, Dark Waters. Um, Another film, uh, along with The Beach Bum, one of the most divisive films that I thought was much better than some people. I really like Jim Jarmusch's zombie comedy, The Dead Don't Die, which I also think is one of the most political films of last year, mm-hmm. but not overtly so. It's basically a film where he's saying, we're fucked. That's what he's saying. The planet's on fire and the characters are repeatedly saying things aren't going to go well. And it has a crazy cast. I'll just mention a few. It has a lot of people he's worked with before. Bill Murray, Adam Driver, Tilda Swinton, Carol Kane, Steve Buscemi, Danny Glover, Iggy Pop, uh, Tom Waits, Chloe Sevigny, Rosie Perez, Selena Gomez, Caleb Landry-Jones. It's crazy, the cast. Caleb Landry-Jones is in a lot of movies as, in the supporting roles. Also in Twin Peaks, uh, The Return. Oh yeah, he was like he was in Get Out, The Florida Project, Three Billboards, yeah. American. Always plays sort of trashy looking, possibly criminal. Yeah, he plays the. He kind of reminds me in a way of like a young Steve Buscemi, who's like weird. Oh, a little bit, yeah. yeah. But uh, who's in the movie too? But this is a. Don't expect it to be like Zombie Land. Like, oh, mm-hmm. it's just. It's like it's. It's a Jim Jarmusch, very dry comedy, and zombies just happen to come into the mm-hmm. film, and they're like, oh, they're zombies. Two it's in a, a row with Adam Driver, right? He did Patterson before this? Right. His two last two narrative films. Yeah. I just thought it was really funny, and it's not going to be for everyone. It's very – I don't want to use the word repetitive, but it, it has a very distinctive Jarmusch dryness and comedy pace to it, but I thought it was re- actually really good. Um a film you just saw today, uh, you're catching yes. up with the Oscar, and it's Ford versus Ferrari, which we both were talking about saying that. Old school. We, yeah, well, we don't care about the subject matter really, but it's no. just so. Uh, it's like one critic said, it's like a barn burner. It's just so entertaining. Mm-hmm. And I think I've said p- to people that if the film had come out when the uh, shortly after the events, uh, the real story, oh, it would yeah. have started Paul Newman and Robert Redford and Steve McQueen, probably. Yeah. Some of the... I mean, in a lot of ways, it feels like it's trying to be a movie of that time. And yeah, like you said, Steve McQueen would have been in it if it had been made at that time. Right. Um, it, it feels this like this is movie. obviously, it has almost become like a cliche, tiresome, or they see it in theaters. But I mean, the specific racing nature of this, the you really get into it when they do the racing scenes when you see it in the movie theater because the sound is so all-encompassing. This movie had great sound editing, sound mixing. I don't know if it was nominated for those, yeah. but yeah, okay, it was. This was one of those where you really notice it while you're watching it, or you're like, oh my god, this sounds incredible. You like feel it in your colon. Yeah, you know, it's like <laughs> yeah. I remember a friend went to see the old Tom Cruise uh, race car film. Days of Day. Thunder. Uh, well, the, what they actually did was they were seeing a film next door, and throughout the entire movie, they heard, mm, mm, mm. It's like the time I saw Atonement in the fourth Rambo movie was playing next door. So you're like watching this mostly very quiet, reserved, you know, period piece, literary adaptation next door. You're, you know, blasting machine guns and still going off. Yeah. But. Uh, I saw it in IMAX, which was really the way to see it. No, and that definitely sounds like it would have been. 
right? And uh, I was going to say, uh, if the, who would have directed this when it came out? Maybe I could see like a Sidney Pollock directing it in like the Don Siegel. Don Siegel, yeah. The, um, but yeah, so don't let the subject matter, uh, you know, deter you. From yeah, it was very much a dad movie. When I was watching it, I was like, are there any actors in this under the age of 40 except for the child? Yeah. <laughs> Probably well, not. I saw uh, one of the people I follow on Twitter say that he walked out of a screening afterwards and a husband and wife were walking out and the husband said, wasn't that amazing? Wasn't that so gripping? And the wife said, I was bored out of my mind. <laughs> you know? So, but you know, I, like little women's really high on your list. Like, mm-hmm. you know, men should be able to watch like very female driven yes. literary adaptation, costume drama, and then women should be able to see something like. Yeah. As far as masculine driven movies, at least this isn't about war like 1917. It's about a fairly benign yeah. hobby. Just well, driving I, cars. No, I would say the film is kind of a war film. It's for oh, yeah, but I mean, there isn't as much male violence. There's more playful male violence because yeah. that has become such a talking point this year. I mean, our top or my top two Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Irishman very much about men committing violence against other people. Right. I do think that um, the film. Uh, it's funny, like so many of the films these days are so long. It's so this one's mm-hmm. over two and a half hours. But I liked how long this was. I was thinking about it when I was watching it. I was like, I like that this is a two and a half hour movie. That that was another sort of throwback nature to it. Like in the sixties, no one cared that a movie was three hours long. They actually wanted it to be long because they yeah. wanted to enjoy paying for a movie and getting their money's worth for a two and a half, three hour movie. It's not yeah. like saying all movies should be that long, but if it's if it's worth it. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing for it to be long. Absolutely. I remember James Gray, the director of Ad Astra, which is I didn't put on the list, but that's one of the better films I saw last year. He was saying that there are films or stories that you could do a mini episode, mini series on. But there's something even to something like The Godfather, the mm-hmm. three hours, like it's a bullet. It's like, boom, three hours. It's like you compact the story, even if it's long into a set time. And it's mm-hmm. one one thing. And Ford versus Ferrari, there's probably so much story and, you know, subplots that they could have done a really fascinating 10 part Netflix or HBO miniseries. But Mm -hmm. there's something to, you know, this should be seen on the big screen. It is like a big screen entertainment Mm -hmm. and old fashioned in a wonderful way. So uh, Ford versus Ferrari. Okay, Uh, A Hidden Life. Mm -hmm. Thought it was wonderful. It's 100 percent Malick, but I am on board for that. Uh, Midsummer also yes. uh, really like that. Great Florence Pugh. This was like the year of Florence Pugh with Fighting with My Family in Midsummer, and then uh, ending up with the Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress for Little Women. Very yeah. much on the Florence Pugh train going right. forward. I would have put her as one of the lead actress nominees for Midsummer just yes. for my profile. I'd put I'd want her over Renee Zellweger or Charlize Theron or yes. uh, yeah you know. when you watch Bombshell Charlize Theron you're like what in what world is that a better acting performance than Florence Pugh in Midsummer? like who, who comes out of those two movies and was like yeah Charlize Theron blew me away well the answer is Academy voters are not gonna watch <laughs> an almost two and a half hour fucked up weird horror movie Swedish movie not yeah. Swedish but taking place in a weird Swedish village yeah versus Bombshell I mean you yeah, can't yeah that's true um Pain and Glory, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you. It's a, a wonderful film. Uh, Parasite, mm-hmm. 
string these alphabetically. And then one we haven't mentioned, Uncut Gems, is yes. would have been high on the list. That's was just like so- number three, I think, for top ten lists for Metacritic as far as their top ten of the year was. Yeah, it just Uncut Gems is just a film that you know, talking about Academy members, I'm not surprised Adam Sandler to get nominated, but he absolutely should have been. Uh, or even I, like throw it a bone for an editing nomination because yeah. the editing in this movie is incredible. The the Safi brothers just have a way of like doing a like a movie on the streets in a way that very few people are capable. Did you watch that uh that short film they put out, Goldman versus Silverman? No, I haven't. It's, it's I mean, it just is a further example of them just getting like street shooting people on streets in a way that is just different than other people do it, and it's sort of a throwback to like a Cassavetes and. Their movies are very singular and uncompromising. Yes, you just want to go through them. Uh, list the top ten real quick. Yeah, a lot of overlap. Uh, but Diego Maradona, number ten. Number nine, Peter Lou. Number eight, The Souvenir. Number seven, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Number six, Pain and Glory. Number five, Marriage Story. Number four, Parasite. Number three, Little Women. Number two, The Irishman. And number one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And my top ten is ten, The Lighthouse, nine, Transit, eight, Marriage Story, seven, The Image Book, six, Ashes, Purest White, five, The Souvenir, four, Peterloo, three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, two, The Beach Bum, number one, definitely is The Irishman for me. But those were our respective top ten lists of 2019. Thank you for listening, and we'll we'll be back with you guys next time.